papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you read... Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis on the news media issues of recent days. And we invite you to join with us. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, welcoming you with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, and Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association. We're going to deal with some great issues here because it's a tumultuous time in the media. Dr. Shartok, I want to start with you on this remarkable coverage of the impeachment. And one question that emerged as I was listening to WAMC, hearing the NPR feed, You are very strict in dealing with programming at WAMC on bad language. But of course, the feed came through. And my question for you and for all of us here is whether it was appropriate for the broadcasters, NPR to all the networks, to go ahead with the language that we heard on that video, which is stuff that you just don't ordinarily hear in broadcast. Do you have any hesitation about that, Alan? Well, sure, we have hesitation about it because we're very strict, as you say, about not crossing those lines. And yet this is news. This is a news feed that every American is watching. So it would be rather stupid for us to say, okay, we're going to start blipping this stuff, although we can't, and or insisting that NPR start doing all of that editing. So, look, every public radio station in the country is probably doing it. It did give us some hesitation. We did have a discussion about it. And in the end, we said, hey, this is news and we're going with it. But, you know, it's interesting that print didn't follow. That is, if you look at newspaper coverage, it still bleeps. (laughs) Bleeps. See, we've become accustomed to the electronic media, but the print doesn't use it. Judy, if you were the editor of a newspaper still, as you were for many years editor of the Daily Gazette, would you have included the language, you think? You know, over the years, we've gotten more tolerant of some words. I I heard the impeachment managers, they would self-edit the F word, but there were other words that they would say. But then when it came to actually airing what the officers were yelling into the radios as they were asking for help or what the rioters were saying, um, you're using actual audio and you had to hear it. For a newspaper, it's very hard not to run that language, but I think if you put F dot, 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 Everybody knows what the word is without saying it. What difference does that make? I'm not sure it makes a ton of difference nowadays. Rosemary, you have a different feeling about it? Yeah, I'm disdainful of this whole conversation because newspapers Ah. have proved again with their language how defunct they are. I mean, language like this, swear words, the F word and all that is used by kids right almost down into elementary school. These are not unknown. It makes no difference if you put F star, 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 or if you put the whole word And I ask you this, how many people are following me at that impeachment? 
on print. They're not. They're going to TV or to radio because it's absolutely mind-blowingly, devastatingly awful and horrible. And the language is part of it. In fact, that's the least of their offenses. And you capture it there, not in print at all. Absolutely. It's quite compelling coverage. You just can't pry yourself away from it if you care at all about the democracy. But let me just stick on the language question for a second before we go back to that, because the New York Times over the past few days got rid of a senior staffer, a terrific reporter named Donald McNeil, because of his use of a racial slur, the N-word, let's be clear, in a conversation with students in 2019. There is a point in language then still, which there are some words that just are not tolerated at all. Isn't that right, Rosemary? Would you say that they did the right thing there in saying that language has no place even in conversation, let alone in print? Okay. I think that any anybody, any white person who uses the N-word and says it out in any context whatsoever is just asking for trouble. Just don't do it. Do I think that's reasonable? Probably. It's so offensive a word. It's sort of like up until Trump turned Nazi, you couldn't call anybody a Nazi because that was too horrible a comparison to make. And the New York Times, the real problem there is that there is a terrible rift in that newsroom and it has to do with race and it's splintered along race lines. And we don't fully know what happened with the excellent science reporter who's the subject of this whole thing. We don't really know. In fact, when it first was reported that he used the N-word in a conversation with students, that complaint was made to the head of the New York Times. The head editor is a black man from the South, probably had that word used against him as a pejorative. And he said, okay, I, I, it's all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline him. I'm going to tell him, don't do it again. But his intent was okay. He was trying to talk, have a talk with students about the use of that word. Then there was a protest in the newsroom. Staffers, 150 of them signed a letter and said, this is no good. You have to do something about it. And Dean Becquet, the editor, then backs up and says, no, no, he's got to go. Intent does not matter now. What about when the New York Times is going to print about other people in public office or politics who uses the N-word or other bad words? Their intent doesn't matter. It's an automatic dismissal. I think we're on a really dangerous slope. You know, it does speak to the fact that standards have changed. If you were to delve into the archives of the Times Union, for example, you would find that in stories discussing that word and the people using it, it has been published in previous years in the newspaper. It had to be um, important and used in context, but the word was used. Now, of course, it wouldn't be at all anymore. Judy, did your paper ever publish the word, do you think? No. Uh, well, I mean, never is a long time, but not when I was there. We, we would have heated debates about it as well and say, well, what if we put it in context? There was a band locally at one point that had the F word in its title, and I was like, how could we cover the band? But if I could make the point that this whole idea of discussing people's resignations or leaving a newspaper, as someone who's been in management, you never know the whole story, because even with Don McNeil, maybe there were other things involved that we don't know, and you're left to speculate about it. And so I know it, the New York Times reporters are high profile, and it's worthy being discussed how this impacts what's happening in the newsroom. But again, from a management perspective, sometimes there's things you just don't know, and management's not going to talk about it. 
How much of this is due to keeping the lid on things at a major organization? I think I mentioned it before, but I know NPR in New York City, WNYC, has had major issues in which there are sides divided up. And who needs it, it seems to me. You know, Judy, you can say, well, we don't really know everything that was going on. Well, we can only judge on the basis of what we do know. I remember when Jesse Jackson, remember that? He said, Jaime Town. <laughs> He said it off the record. As a Jew, I was offended by it, I'll tell you right now. But he said it, it got wide dissemination, and he's now one of the most respected human beings in America, I think. So, you know, there is, based on the time and when it happened, things do change. But it's tough, isn't it, Alan, when you're running a news organization and you may know something about a personnel issue, a personnel decision you've had to make. While we as news organizations believe in transparency, demand it, in fact, people we're covering, we don't practice right. it so much ourselves, right? You make a great point, and it's one that has really teed, as in T as in Thomas, teed me off in the past. T as in Thomas. Yeah, you know, as I in... was going to say, peed me off. But I didn't oh. want to say, I didn't want to say <laughs> peed me off, so I said teed me off. As in ticked. <laughs> I see. I thought you were talking about Clarence Thomas. That too. Uh, him you also don't like, right? Is that how you say it? Him I uh, do so, not like. All right. So this transparency issue is a significant one. And as is, to Rosemary's point, the question of race as it plays out in the workplace is very difficult in news organizations because you try to reach out to an entire community. But we know that our news organizations usually fail in that regard. We are not as successful in our outreach to communities of color. Some would say that we haven't even tried in recent years, but the hiring is very difficult. Rosemary, when you were a, when you were a managing editor down in Florida, I imagine you had to encounter this all the time, trying to do hiring to make your newsroom reflect the community. And that's a very difficult challenge, right? It is because it's work that's not the most agreeable, long hours, hard to have a personal life if you're a young person, and the pay is horrible. So yeah, to get promising young minority people into a newsroom was always a difficulty. And if they feel that they are coming into an environment that doesn't really speak to their community, or they're coming into a newsroom that doesn't have a lot of people who look like they look, it makes it even harder. I don't know, frankly, I'll tell you, 30 years of running newsrooms, I still don't know how to make that work better. And I never felt that I was very successful with it, never felt that we did as good a job as we should have at covering or reaching out to communities of color. You know, at one point I thought we were slowly making some progress, but then, you know, 2008 happened and you had the retrenchment in the newsrooms and everything went kaput. And now with the pandemic, things have gotten even worse as smaller newspapers have, you know, the feeders of young reporters learning new skills. Those are all diminishing. And so that's exacerbating the problem. It seems like we're losing ground. We're not gaining ground. And yet, if we don't make any progress, we're going to leave entire communities uncovered and the division in society will be even more pronounced. You don't notice that being an initiative that some of the media care about. Fox News, for example, does not seem to be a place that is particularly caring about diversity. Most of their hiring seems to have to do with skirt length, quite frankly. And blonde hair. And blonde hair, yes. <laughs> and blonde hair as well. <laughs> Nevertheless, Fox isn't stupid. They know very well that they have as much money as they need to make hires. 
and you can certainly find somebody with more skin pigmentation who will be willing to work for a lot of money. That doesn't exist in every other newsroom where resources are limited. And I think that's an important point. It is. We're talking about minority membership in a minority group, but more important to me is class differences. Even the blacks and Latinos that get hired in newsrooms tend to be middle class, college educated. And so the truth of the matter is whole swaths of communities for years have gone uncovered in Albany, in every place I've ever worked. It isn't just here. It isn't just at Fox News. It's everywhere. We just simply don't cover those communities, minority communities, unless we're talking about a protest or a murder. We have these great divides, race, religion, gender, generation. You know, what age of people do we hire? Geography. These are all the great divides of American society. The great African-American publisher, Robert Maynard from Oakland, articulated these 20 years ago, and we haven't made great progress in any of them. Alan talked about Fox's wealth. I just want to make note of the fact that we have in recent days seen a threat to it, and that is the $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit filed against Fox and some of its uh, commentators by the voting machine company, which is significant, that $2.7 million number, because Fox's pre-tax profits last year were just over that, $3 billion. So it is interesting, I think, that the challenge to the right-wing media has never been successful from ordinary citizens or from politicians, but it seems to be coming now from business. There seems to be a side that that may be uh, an issue, right? Well, you know, we know that Trump is a lying, lying, lying liar. And as long as he was president of the United States and was in power, some of the people, for example, on Fox, who went right along with it. Anything he said, they said they thought that they'd get away with it. But of course, everything comes to an end. Trump is coming to an end now. And the people who followed him telling the same lies he was were now being subjected to this kind of a lawsuit. And a good thing, too, I say. A good thing. Rosemary, do you think it's a good thing? Yep. Anything that controls, that tries to control disinformation is a good thing. I find it sad that more regulation, more control is coming from business than from individuals, but it's a start. And there's also a movement for people to go to their local cable companies and say, I don't want to pay for Fox anymore. The truth is Fox is included in all basic cable packages. And so you pay for it, whether you watch it or not. I don't want that anymore. So people are beginning to call and protest. There's a movement on a foot on that, too. Anything that hits them in the pocketbook has an effect. We saw that with Lou Dobbs this week. And so, yes, I'm in favor of it. Rosemary, because there are people who listen who have no idea what happened to Lou Dobbs. Why don't you just say? Lou Dobbs, out Hannity Hannity on Fox Business News. He was a absolutely rabid, kind of crazed Trump fan. He went way beyond everybody else, even Tucker Carlson and Judge Judy can't touch him. And he was named in a suit by Smartmatic. That's one of the voting machine companies who claim they have been defamed by Fox and its commentators. And the next day, he was dropped. He was let go. Now, there's some speculation that Fox actually let him go because he's so crazy that advertisers have been shunning his show. But at any rate, he's off the air now. But now let me just take a second to say, I understand you're saying that it's good that Fox is being hit in the pocketbook, but let me just read you what the network's lawyers argued in response to the lawsuit. Quote, when a sitting president and his surrogates claim an election was rigged, the public has a right to know what they are claiming, full stop. If those surrogates fabricated evidence or told lies with actual malice, then a defamation action may lie against them but not against the media that covered their allegations. 
So is it right to say, yay, we're going to cheer the complaint against the media? Or is the media, was Fox News just doing its job, let's say, in illuminating those arguments? And the answer is, it depends. It depends on what he said. I mean, if he said, independently of the president, this is what's going on, and he wasn't quoting the president, then, of course, he's open to the defamation. Am I wrong about that? Smartmatic would have no difficulty at all proving malice in the case of Fox News. Other news media, CNN, MSNBC, if you want to go to the other end of the spectrum, also reported that the president and Giuliani were blaming the voting machines, that it was some sort of a conspiracy rigged up by the dead dictator of Venezuela's QAnon proportions. They reported it. The news was out. But they didn't cheer it on. It didn't act like it was solid and real. And I think that, yeah, it's a matter for a jury to decide, and they could lose that. The media could lose that. Exactly. Because all media isn't the same. So you can't say the media would lose it because Fox is different from CNN, as you have just pointed out. And CNN, by the way, was reporting what somebody else had said, I believe, whereas Fox had a commentator who was mirroring what the president was saying. Interesting, by the way, Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, has a talk show on WABC in New York City, and the radio station now airs a disclaimer before he starts that basically tries to separate the station and its advertisers from Giuliani's content. (laughs) And Giuliani didn't like it. He made it quite clear he didn't like that they were doing that. Tough noogies, as we say. Yeah, but from a legal perspective, that disclaimer is probably worthless. But I also wanted to make the point that it was just last year that a federal judge agreed with Fox's own lawyer that, you know, Tucker Carlson, when he was being sued by Karen McDougal, that people couldn't take what he was saying as serious commentary, that he is hyperbolic, that you can't take him seriously. So that's out there as a legal case. Fox is maintaining that they're simply reporting on the controversy and they're not liable for what their guests say. Well, everybody who runs a newsroom or runs a media organization knows that just attributing some false information to somebody is not enough to clear you of slander or libel. I mean, uh, you have to have some responsibility. You can't let people go on and on and on. And in Fox's case, it's their own host, Janine Pirro, Lou Dobbs. They were accelerating this in a way that went far beyond simply reporting on the controversy. I think that's an important point that most people probably don't realize, Judy, that it is true that just saying we're covering what somebody said is not an adequate defense against libel. We have been in a situation in the Times Union newsroom of declining to publish comments made by uh, high-ranking elected officials because we thought that they were libelous. And so you can say, well, it's newsworthy if a politician says it, but you're not protected from libel if you pass along a libel. That is not in itself a defense. So these are difficult decisions that newsroom leaders have to make that I think people don't realize as it's going on. But I promised we were going to get back to the impeachment because it is such a remarkable moment for the media. And it goes to this question. Actually, a writer for uh, the Columbia Journalism Review noted that people have often said that Donald Trump's style was made for TV. And the difficulty is that now we have come to expect everything to be made for TV. We really need, because that's the only way people absorb information, but an awful lot of important issues simply don't get across that way. I don't know what to do about that. How do you get across content like the scientific challenge of global warming if it doesn't have the drama that that great 
TV coverage of the assault on the Capitol had? Are we going to leave ourselves only open to the kind of content that is made for TV? Well, Rosemary had something to say about this earlier in the program, and I think it's worth her restating it again in terms of where, you know, the print media is compared with the TV media. You may read about it in the I do read it about it in the Washington Post the next morning, but it was the seeing it which attracted all of the, well, for want of a better word, flies. Uh, news reporters have been told and taught for, well, at least 20 years now that I can remember that they have to change their storytelling style. And I have criticized the Democratic Party many times on the roundtable for not learning how to tell a story, how to direct a narrative in the way that the Republicans, and especially Trump, who is a master, have done. So we brought this on ourselves. Yes, our audiences are addicted to drama and storytelling, and they don't want to do homework. They don't want to read technical reports. They don't want to read dull important but boring stories. We have urged them to think that way. And so now we have to deliver. And there's no way to think that climate change is not dramatic. People are dying over trying to protect their homes. People are dying trying to live in the same places they always have in the same way. It is a dramatic story, but the media has to spend the money and put the talent out there to go get those stories. Yes, but think about it for a second. What they did, Rosemary, on the impeachment hearings, the Democrats did in the House of Representatives, was so extraordinary, so well done, such a good storytelling, that at least maybe somebody's listening to you. A lot of what you're seeing in these impeachment hearings is information gathered by journalists on videotape, and a lot of it was spliced together by reporters writing for newspapers, indicating that they talked to so-and-so who said, this is what the president was doing here and then. That was part of this narrative that was strung together. And without that basic information, without the videotape from the reporter from The New Yorker, without reporters flooding that zone that day or doing the follow-up with analysis, that was probably 25% of what you were seeing in this impeachment trial. It's true. I mean, when you heard accounts of what the president was saying to people in the White House, what he was doing in there, that's a result of newspaper reporters doing their work and ferreting out the information. Not and say what you want. It's true. It is most almost whoa, whoa, whoa. all the time. Well, we do know that if you watch CNN as a regular, and I am, you know that an awful lot of television reporters are in the game. They say their sources are telling them this is what the president was thinking. So I, I would be very careful, both Rex and Judy, if I were consistently trying to defend the indefensible by saying newspaper reporters are basically the only ones out there who are collecting information. There, take that. She said 25 But they are, Alan. <laughs> I would say it's more than that. I would say it's Wait, less than that. Come on, let me have a chance. Oh, yeah. I'm so, I'm <laughs> I so sorry, that... Rosemary, because everybody says you don't get enough of a chance. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, I do horn in, but I want to support Judaism. I would say it's even more than that. If you listen to CNN and MSNBC, they always refer to newspaper reporters. Yes, they do follow-up reporting and additional information. They fact-check. They add footage and all that. But the original seeds of stories, of big stories, almost exclusively our newspaper. Guess what? We're not watching the same television channels because I can tell you right now that consistently CNN staff are saying that they got the information. Maybe the New York Times is uh, Yeah, yeah right. You, 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 you poor guy. This show, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, should be called the, the three against one show. The dying newspaper people are in there talking. We can do no wrong and... 
TV does nothing right. Wrong. That's just wrong. It's not only newspapers, <laughs> terrestrial radio. Alan, terrestrial radio is in terrible trouble. You know, the two largest donors of radio stations, 1,200 stations, they're in bankruptcy. News Talk, I don't know if WAMC is in that category, but it's only 9.5% of the audience, and uh, that is a very old audience that goes for what's going on on radio. So, you know, we're not the only ones in trouble. The whole media ecosystem is in what? some trouble. What, does this give you joy, Rex? You know, No, <laughs> it doesn't. I just want to say Well, well yeah. You know, we're dying all right, but so is everybody else. Yeah. Well, you know, I have a six-year-old grandson who says the same thing. Oh, well, dear. I, I am happy to see that right-wing radio is among those dying. When Rush Limbaugh finally bows out, there may be no replacement, and it's lost much of its audience, especially since the pandemic means no one's driving to and from work anymore. So that is happy news about the demise of at least that part of the media empire. I don't know. You know, you got 73 million people who voted for Donald Trump and who who are perfectly capable of supporting the most radical, nonsensical spouting off that comes out of a Rush Limbaugh and nature abhors a vacuum. And I'm quite sure they'll find another one. Well, and the talk is spouting off. <laughs> that went fast. We're not yeah. done. That can't be right. We are done. We're what? Done. Alan, I'm just Alan getting started. Judy Patrick, <laughs> you'll have to tune in again next week, folks. Rosemary Armeo and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to you for listening, to David Gustina, our producer, and to the great journalists we are covering here for the work they do every day. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggering. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and former chair of the Department of Journalism at the University at Albany. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download Download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now, newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. Ting-ling-ling, newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the guild. Publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny, Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now, publishers are such interesting people. 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. 